0: Welcome to another episode of The Wounded Blue Hour with your host Randy Sutton. I am a retired police lieutenant with 34 years of service, I'm the founder of The Wounded Blue, which is the national uh, association that helps injured and disabled law enforcement officers, author of uh, A Cop's Life and the soon to be released Rescuing 911: The Fight for America's Safety. This show is dedicated to the mental, physical, spiritual well-being of America's law enforcement community and uh before we bring in my guest i want to do what i call on this show our reality check where we pay our respects to the officers who this week have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty the first officer i want to pay our respects to is police officer paul tracy of the waltham police department in massachusetts police officer paul tracy was struck and killed by a vehicle while he was working a construction detail in waltham the subject was driving east on totten pond road at 4 15 p.m when he attempted to make a u-turn and collided with another vehicle he drove away from the crash and struck officer tracy and three national guard utility workers about a quarter mile from the initial collision the subject continued driving when he struck two additional vehicles he fled on foot brandished a knife and then stole a police cruiser He was apprehended after a foot pursuit officer tracy and one of the utility workers died from their injuries two other utility workers are in the hospital the subject was charged with failure to stop for police negligent operation of motor vehicle larceny of a motor vehicle armed robbery assault with a dangerous weapon manslaughter and leaving the scene of an accident officer tracy had served the waltham police department for 28 years Police Officer Paul Tracy, Waltham Police Department, Massachusetts. End of watch, Wednesday, December 6, 2023. The next is Sergeant Russell Earl Lavarle Jones of the Pamlico County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina. Sergeant Russell Jones suffered a fatal heart attack after responding to a disruptive inmate at the Pamlico County Detention Center in Bayboro. While trying to subdue the inmate at 8.33 p.m., Sergeant Jones was punched in the face. Fifteen minutes later, he collapsed. Despite life-saving measures, he was unable to be resuscitated. Sergeant Jones had served with the Pamlico County Sheriff's Office for four years. Sergeant Russell Earl LeVarle Jones, Pamlico County Sheriff's, North Carolina. End of Watch, Wednesday, December 6, 2023. And the third is Deputy Sheriff Paul Martin of the Mercer County Sheriff's Office in North Dakota. Deputy Sheriff Paul Martin was struck and killed while deploying spike strips in an attempt to stop the pursuit of a stolen vehicle on Highway 200. Authorities were notified of a stolen vehicle from Sanford Medical Center in Bismarck. When, Merced, well, excuse me, when Mercer County deputies located the SUV in Hazen, the driver fled and a pursuit began. Five minutes west of Hazen, the driver crashed into a Mercer County Sheriff's Office patrol vehicle with its emergency lights activated. The impact propelled the patrol vehicle into Deputy Martin, who was deploying the stop sticks. The subject was apprehended at the crash scene. Deputy Martin has served with the Mercer County Sheriff's Office for 18 years. Deputy Sheriff Paul Martin, Mercer County Sheriff's Office, North Dakota, end of watch Wednesday, December 6, 2023. That is six police officers, law enforcement officers, killed on the same day. We're about 113 officers who have given their lives so far this year. In addition to that, the number of shootings of police officers is astronomical. More than 350 this year. That's one a day. That doesn't count the assaults of last year. There was more than 60,000 physical assaults on law enforcement officers. So that talks about the physical dangers of the job. The emotional, psychological dangers are uh, can be just as deadly as we will talk about when I bring my guest in who is waiting for us right now. Let me uh, read you a little bit about him. He's got a hell of a he's got a hell of a CV. I'll tell you that. His name is Joe Collins. He is the public safety liaison for Acadia Healthcare, but he had an amazing career in law enforcement. He uh, um, began his law enforcement career in August of 1985. During his career, he held numerous positions to include patrol, patrol supervisor, investigator, trainer, administrator, and police chief. He holds a bachelor's degree in administration of criminal justice and an associate degree in police science. He's working on his master's in managing organizational behavior. During his 35 years in law enforcement, he's been involved in a number of specialty units, SWAT, drug investigators, field training supervisor, bike patrol, marine patrol, honor guard, use of force instructor, and many, many others. He is federally certified use of force and firearms instructor, has trained officers throughout the United States. He's a member of the International Chiefs of Police, Wisconsin Chiefs of Police, and formerly served as the chair of the Training and Professional Development Committee for this organization uh he's a graduate of the fbi national academy and uh president of the wisconsin fbi national academy association he's got a hell of a cv let me introduce to you my friend joe collins joe thank hey, you good- thanks so much for being here
1: thanks randy and it, it sounded as though my mom wrote that for me so i appreciate
0: that <laughs> well i gotta tell you I, I got a little winded reading all that but you put the time in you deserve it and, and and it's important for my audience to get a little flavor of who you are because you know the gravity of the things we're going to be discussing um mm-hmm. they have to know that you know what you're talking about that's a, you know that's when i bring a guest onto this show um it's it's imperative that you know they have the credibility and you have all that credibility but i'd like a, my audience to get to know you just a little bit if you would Talk about you know where you grew up and what led you to choose a career in law enforcement.
1: Right, well, as a child, I grew up in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and we moved to Northern Wisconsin during uh, the last year of junior high, and I went to high school then in Northern Wisconsin and uh, at Northwestern in Maple. Um, then I decided that I was going to uh, go into youth ministry. So I went to the college up at St. Scholastica in Duluth, and uh, that's where I met my wife. And my wife was actually a security guard working up there, and uh, she got me a job as being a security officer, and that was in the fall of 1984. And I put a uniform on, and I didn't take it off until uh, February 7th of 2020. <laughs> so I did. Uh, I did 35 years in law enforcement, um, as you said in the uh, the intro, a lot of different hats, uniforms, different positions that I wore, uh, from patrol to SWAT to honor guard, and. Uh, yeah. So it was uh, pretty interesting. And, and, uh, it, uh, as soon as you started reading those names off, a lot of, a lot of memories came back because I was on the honor guard for, for many years and went to way too many law enforcement funerals. And, uh, that kind of started the path where I am today, helping first responders now navigate the behavioral health world and, uh, working with your organization and, and doing that across the country and internationally. And, uh, that's, I tell people that, uh, that's my purpose, My PFE is uh, to help navigate the behavioral health system, to help our first responders, or agencies, family members uh, find the right level of care with culturally competent people at the correct type of program. Um, and why I do it because I've seen what
0: happens when people get the right kind of care. And I, I want to go, go back. I want to go, go, go back yes. to, to your uh, position with the Honor Guard, and, and let mm-hmm. me tell you. Let me tell you why. Um, I, too, served um, 15 years with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Honor Guard. And as you just said, I buried a lot of, a lot of friends and a lot of um, comrades through those years. And it, it's particularly poignant at this moment because yesterday and Friday, uh, this is, uh, uh, I was reporting, as you know, I, I do journalism as well for law nice. enforcement, And I was reporting for hours at the funerals of two Nevada state troopers who were killed Mm -hmm. in the line of duty a week ago. Uh, They were both struck by a drunk driver as they were out of their patrol vehicle assisting a motorist. And and I got to tell you, since I left the honor guard, I purposefully have been avoiding going to police funerals because of the emotional effect it has on me um and and seeing these two funerals and reporting on them was it, it 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 hit me really really hard and so when you tell me that part of the reason that brought you to what your path is today was was formed by your experiences on the honor guard, I can really, Mm -hmm. truly relate. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what what well, first of all, wait Before that. What do you think? What was your favorite assignment in all all the decades (laughs) that you served as a cop? What was your
1: favorite assignment? And it's it's funny because uh, everybody that has been in the position and moved out of that position Pretty much says the same thing, and I'm and I'm saying it was night
0: shift patrol sergeant. I knew, and, I, knew uh, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. And yeah, you- and, and kind of, I, I jokingly say
1: that uh, you got you got to be in charge of the stuff that was happening on the street. You kind of picked and choose where you went, so some of the you know crap calls you didn't have to go to, and if it got too dicey and it got too complicated or something else, you you handed it off to the lieutenant. <laughs> so you know that's kind of that that's what it is and it's like you know what that was that was kind of a, a really cool space and um i look back
0: on that very fondly yeah i i uh i understand that i completely get it so um you after after a stellar law enforcement career mm-hmm. you chose a different path explain mm-hmm. i mean I, I i know that um i met you through acadia healthcare and your organization is doing amazing things for law enforcement and um and it's it's really important that we talk about uh about what you're doing now and uh, for my law enforcement audience to Mm -hmm. hear about what acadia does and and the the, realize that um that there is help out there for a lot of different reasons Absolutely, so I'm
1: gonna step back a little bit. And uh, so I was in the honor guard, like we discussed before. And uh, in 2005, I became the police chief in Two Rivers, Wisconsin, just outside of Green Bay. And uh, early during that, I was asked to come to a meeting in Green Bay with some friends of mine. And I wasn't quite sure what it was. I knew they were helping out first responders and police officers in particular at the time. But what I learned that day is that there was an organization in Wisconsin And it was called the leader team and it was the law enforcement death response team and what their job was and what they had taken on was to help organizations that lost an officer and at that time in 2005 it was in the line of duty and uh, they asked me at that meeting uh, if i would be the, the the lead for that team and so in 2005 and i led that team from 2005 until 2015. And I'm gonna tell you, when you said that you stopped going to funerals, (laughs) I stopped going to funerals um, as a result of being on that team as well. And what had happened is we had an officer was killed in in Northern Wisconsin and rural county, didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, So we we physically went there and we spent probably three or four days there helping them put everything together, Um, the honor guard, the funeral, everything. And I went to the funeral and afterwards I realized that doing all the debriefs, helping to organize all that stuff, helping put together different things and components of that. And then going to the funeral was too much for me, is that you've got to understand where your limitations are and where your personal health lies. Um, So from that point, I helped with all organizing everything up to the point of the funeral. And I had personally chosen not to go to the funeral because as you said, and why you did, it was just too much for me to be there after helping with all of the stuff leading up to that. There is there is a, however, <laughs> to this is uh, one of my best friends, uh, Tony Barthouli, was a police chief in Fond du Lac. And uh, he had an officer that was killed in the line of duty. Um, he, uh, he had another officer shot, they had a canine shot. It was a very difficult situation. Um, and I and here here's what your body can do. And we often talk about this in, getting into operations mode when things are difficult. It's easy for us to get into operations mode because that's where we can control. And so I was very ill the evening uh, before I actually stayed home from work. And uh, at about six o'clock in the morning, I get a call from Tony that this had happened in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And uh, he said that he needed me and he was in route. So I'm like, all right, I'm on the way. And so I took a shower. I came out of the shower and I got a call from Tony's wife. Who was with him in the vehicle and said, Tony just wants to make sure that he told you that he needed you there. And I'm like, absolutely, he told me that. So even in that short period of time, Tony had forgotten our phone call, parts of it. So I drove to Fond du Lac. And again, I want to reiterate that I was extremely sick until that phone call. And I was in Fond du Lac for an entire week helping because I had a memorial service in Fond du Lac. Uh, The officer, Craig Burkholz, who was killed, was actually from her scene. So we had the memorial service on Wednesday and then we had the funeral in Racine on on Saturday. Uh, And that's quite a roller coaster. We were helping with everything. We had about 27 agencies, 200 officers that helped patrol the city so that their people could actually go to the memorial, go to the funerals. Um, And I went to the funeral because that was for Tony, my friend. I got home after the funeral on Saturday and this was the previous Sunday. I remembered that I had been sick on the day that he called me on Saturday after the funeral. So that's what my body did for me. Wow. And uh, so that tells you that you can get into operations mode, but guess what? It's still there. You still got stuff in your system that if you don't do something about it, and we'll get more into detail with this, it will stay in your system until you do something to get it out of your system.
0: <clears throat> I, found, I found when I was uh, covering the funerals, especially the first one of uh, of this trooper um, that um, I I was out of control of my own emotions. Um, I didn't have I mean, I'm happy that I wasn't on camera the entire time that much Mm -hmm. of it was was, you know, um, uh, uh, covering it verbally only while they were, Mm -hmm. you know, while the audience was watching the service, Uh, but but I, I had I had no control over over my emotions and 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 literally I, I had to go into another room and just and sob. And, mm-hmm. and and as you know, I mean having control is really important to to a police officer, especially, right. you know, when, when you're in a position where I mean here I am, I'm on the air and mm-hmm. I couldn't control myself. And, right. and I and that shows you the, how, how you, the things that you see in your, in your career as a law enforcement officer can have such a dramatic effect. And I've been retired since 2010. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, so let's go ahead. No, no, let's, let's, let's continue.
1: Absolutely. So let's dig into that. How does that happen? How does that happen to your body? So there's all kinds of different traumas. And I do have my master's now And you're in your bio, you're talking about uh, working on it. So my master's is in organizational behavior. So I jokingly say that I can't tell you, I can tell you that your organization is messed up on an organizational level, but I can't tell you individually that you are, but guess what? We're all organizations, right? <laughs> so <laughs> here's what happens is what you're dealing with and what you're talking about is what we call cumulative trauma, right? Those are, th- those are things that have been building, building up into your system over a career. Um, and then what we do is that we we, we kind of refer to that as the death by a thousand cuts. And then you have these significant traumatic events. We call them acute traumatic events. And that's, those are the big T's in the business is that uh, you watch an officer get shot. You had a partner get shot. Maybe you went on a call with a child and, you know, that impacts you at a higher level. Um, so you've got your cumulative trauma for the through the career you sprinkle in some of these big acute traumatic situations right and then we have what's called vicarious trauma and what vicarious trauma is is experiencing trauma through someone else's experience so when you're at these funerals you may or may not know the person but what you're doing is you're experiencing trauma yourself from previous traumas right from the cumulative stuff but then vicariously you're absorbing traumas that other people are experiencing and uh, so there's all kinds of trauma that are, that's building up into your body. And I use an analogy when I often teach and, and talk about this is the suit of armor. And what does that mean? So when we train our police officers to become police officers, we suit them up with a suit of armor because when they walk out of training at the academy, it's dangerous outside, right? So we want to have something that can protect them from the rounds that are coming at them from society. Um, so what can happen? You can have an acute traumatic situation, a big T, right? And blow off your all of your armor in an instant. You're standing there naked. You have no idea what happened. You can't control your emotions. You have no idea what to do about it. That's a big T, right? Now the cumulative trauma, the death by a thousand cuts, the analogy of the armor is that you're walking along and maybe three years down, you look down and uh, all of a sudden your armor and your arm is gone. It's like, well, I had armor on my arms. Where did that go? Well, I got leg armor, I got a chest plate, I got a helmet. Let's get busy, right? Because if you get busy, you can control it, right? So all of a sudden you look and your leg armor's gone from another little T that hits you. And it's like, crap, where did my leg armor go? But I got my chest armor, I got a helmet, right? And then all of a sudden you don't. It may be a, a cute thing happened, another T happened, but then all of a sudden you're standing there without armor on and you have no idea what to do with your, for yourself because you can't control it. It's out of your control. And the vicarious trauma the suit of armor analogy is that when someone's standing next to you that you knew that they had a suit of armor on before they started and all of a sudden you look and they don't and it's like hey dude where did your armor go and I, you feel responsible for that person and now you don't know what to do about it so that's kind of the vicarious trauma the cumulative trauma the big t the acute trauma blast their armor off and what we don't do is that we don't Train our people to recognize when you've lost a piece of it, or if you lost it all, what do you do? How do you how do you get back into control of those emotions? Like what you were talking about. We were recently out in Maui helping after the fire. I was there on September eleventh, and we were doing some peer support with the police officers out there and stuff. And and without divulging who it was, we talked with someone that was there, that was in responsibility for that city, and uh, it was devastating. It was just unbelievable. And we asked him, it's like, so how do you how do you feel about this? What are you thinking? And he looked around and he says, I don't want to think about it right now. I don't want to think about it. I just want to do my job. Because what do you have control over? <laughs> you can control your job. He did not want to address his emotions because what? He wasn't sure where that was gonna go. And not knowing that is scary, right? And why do we hire our first responders and police officers to be problem solvers? What happens when they can't solve their own? Now you layer on shame and guilt and you don't wanna tell anybody about it because you think that somebody's gonna look at you differently. You're gonna look at yourself differently. Um, And then all of that stuff gets layered and then you start spiraling out of control, right? Because you're like, oh shit, now I can't take care of my own stuff. I don't know how to control my emotions. Why am I breaking down? What can I do? And then it just gets worse because if, once you recognize that that is happening to you, that can become another active, activating event and make it more difficult for you to actually process. And you know what, ask for help.
0: So what you are describing is post-traumatic stress injury. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I want to get, in, I want to get into the, into, into depth with this. Um, you know, we 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 refer to it now as an injury whereas just even just a couple years ago it was called post trauma everybody referred to any type of post-traumatic stress as a as post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. and i really wanted to talk about that because even the utilization of that word disorder at the end of post-traumatic stress can be traumatizing in and of itself when it comes Mm -hmm. down to the reaching out for help so, if, if you would, I mean, I know this is deep in your in in your uh, um, wealth of information. Let's talk about the difference between post traumatic stress injury and post traumatic stress disorder. Absolutely, and we'll talk about how the
1: PTSD, the disorder, came about. Is that that is what they labeled it in the physician's desk reference? because the insurance companies had to refer to something that they were going to pay. And that's the only reason, it, it happened in the 70s, uh, but this has been going on forever. They just didn't have a title for it, right? So it was called battle fatigue, it was called shell shock, it was all of these different things in the military in the different wars, but they didn't know what it was. And right, now be, it's be, led before, up to before, this.
0: Before we go on, unfortunately, <laughs> yep. I have to take a hard break and we're gonna come back and we're gonna jump right back into this.
2: Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Today's high stress on the go lifestyle makes it hard to stay heart healthy. Lifestyle changes like exercise and diet are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support three aspects of heart health, cholesterol, blood pressure, and triglycerides with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill, It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients. You would need to take 13 pills to get the same amount of nutrients in each gel pack. And these great-tasting gels come in a small packet. Tear off the top, shoot it down, or mix it in water. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. for the soul of humanity.
0: One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Keurig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to onenationcoffee.com, order your coffee. And uh, you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue. So uh, go to onenationcoffee.com. Talk to you about a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. Um, it, this is a this is a really unique company, and it is law enforcement owned. It is law enforcement operated, and it helps guard you and your family from those that are are trolling the internet looking for information about you. I was uh, I was absolutely shocked at the personal information that was available on on internet searches about me, I mean, including where I live. And this was pointed out to me by uh, Pete James, the owner of Officer Privacy, who is a a retired law enforcement officer. And when he showed this to me, I was, I was, well, how do you, how do you get rid of this stuff? And he smiled. He says, well, that's what Officer Privacy does. And um, it's very effective, very effective. They're not expensive and it gives you a peace of mind to know that what they do is they actually go into the internet and they they do all these searches and then they remove personal information that can lead to getting that information in the hands of people that you really don't want it so go to officerprivacy.com check them out uh contact them tell my randy sutton sent you Uh, i am a uh, i'm a very satisfied customer myself and they're doing they're doing really good work, and everybody that works for him, uh, and and actually goes in and gets this information out is former law enforcement or current law enforcement. So you can you know that that they have your best interests in mind. Officerprivacy.com. Now, I also want to talk about the wounded blue wounded blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers and as you might have surmised from the conversation that i've been having with joe collins is we recognize injuries as being physical but also emotional and psychological so um, we've helped more than fourteen thousand police officers in the last five years and it's absolutely essential that you know that this is a confidential service. This is a nationwide charity. Uh, We are a nonprofit. Uh, We run solely on donations. So I'm gonna ask you to donate. I'm gonna ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org and hit that donate button and give what you can, especially now the Christmas season. One of the things that we're doing, the Wounded Blues, we're making Christmas happen for a number of law enforcement families that have faced severe financial hardship because of the injuries that they have faced you can help just hit that donate button and give what you can if you can do 10 bucks a month 20 bucks a month whatever it is that you're comfortable with or a one-time gift if you want to sponsor a family if you want to sponsor a family contact me randy at the wounded it's randy at the and if you want to become a sponsor of this program or the wounded blue Give me, uh, give me. I going to say, give me a call. Well, don't give me a call. Uh, give me an email, Randy at thewoundedblue.org, and let's get back to Joe. Joe, okay, we are. We're getting right now into the meat of of what mm-hmm. you do and the imperative nature of addressing post traumatic stress. So you told me something I didn't even know that that post traumatic stress disorder was a phrase mm-hmm. coined in the 70s in order to give doctors something to bill under. That was an interesting, right. that was interesting. But of course, post-traumatic stress has been with us throughout history, just wasn't recognized. Mm-hmm. Absolutely,
1: and, and all of the wars, they, they had a name for it. Um, and it was in the 70s after, after Vietnam because they were starting to recognize the, the soldiers coming back from that era. And having issues, and that's where the post-traumatic stress disorder was labeled. But but you are very correct in saying that it's an injury, because what it is is it's a it's a systems injury, an organizational injury, if you will, for your body, your brain, your heart, because you talked about spirituality and mental and physical. That's all combined. And there was it wasn't that long ago that science and the medical industry had completely separated the physical aspect of medicine. And the brain, <laughs> thinking that they did not have a system in place to, they didn't know about the autonomic nervous system or something. I don't know. It's 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 funny now thinking that they would have done that with what we now know, but what they didn't think back then. So, so one of our docs actually coined a really kind of cool phrase about this in in having systems and going through trauma and having your body react and, and not knowing what to do about it, is that. It's your body's normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Let me repeat that. You're having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Our bodies, the human being is not designed to see, witness, experience traumatic situations and not have a reaction. (laughs) That's a defense mechanism. And what it does is it actually boils all the way back to caveman time. We all know about fight or flight, right? Hypervigilance, we talk about that in in the first responder world. It's very, very important for us to survive and physically survive. Because what did the cavemen do? As soon as they walked out of the cave, they were either hunting for food or they were preventing themselves from being food. (laughs) So it was the fight or flight, right? So they're activated all the time. Now, if you are activated all the time and you're seeing and witnessing all these traumatic situations, your body is reacting to those things, whether you know it or not, it's happening in cortisol and adrenaline, the fight or flight, the protective chemicals in case you need to fight the grizzly bear or you need to run away from them are being constantly dumped into your system. And you need that when you're in danger or you need to flee. You do not need that constantly being dumped into your system when you are not in danger. Because if it is, it will kill you. Those chemicals are the number one cause of cortisol, our heart disease, cancer, and all of those different things in our systems. Because what we refer to the the adrenaline and the fight or flight and the cortisol being dumped is the gas pedal. And the gas pedal is slammed on all the time. And what we don't do, and like you kind of referred to it, is we don't help our first responder, our police officers, recognize when they're in that and what to do to get out of it, because there are things that you can do to stop that in your system.
0: Okay, I want to get into, since you're in the organizational space as well, I want to talk about the the, uh, management of law enforcement agencies, management and how they react to Officers who are suffering or, or are, uh, you know, having um, issues with post-traumatic stress injury. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really only in the last, I'm going to say, 10 or so years that post-traumatic stress injury has even been recognized as a legitimate injury in many of the, of the uh, um, uh, areas in law enforcement. I mean, mm-hmm. and then uh, I can remember just a couple years ago that the accepted that the accepted logic was that if you had post-traumatic stress, quote, disorder, unquote, it was because of one specific incident. And mm-hmm. in fact, you couldn't even as a police officer, you couldn't even. Um, uh, be recognized as suffering from that if you couldn't point to one particular incident and insurance wouldn't even pay for it if there wasn't an incident specifically that could be recounted that led to that to to this issue so we're look, we're looking at a brave new world if you will that we where mm-hmm. this is still this is still um, you know in the in the infancy of understanding
1: absolutely it is and Boy, we could go on for many hours talking about this as well right so there's even more to it in some places randy where you're talking about that you had to point to a specific incident and a lot of places you had to point to a specific incident and you had to be injured physically (laughs) and if you weren't then then you couldn't have possibly suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder is what they called it right um so uh, i did most of my career in wisconsin and uh, they had statutes on there from the early 70s as it related to post-traumatic stress disorder within any of the different working environments. And here is the analogy that they used, is that if there were three people that went to a situation, three police officers went to a call, it was a traumatic call, and uh, two of those police officers did not suffer a traumatic response to that the third officer they shouldn't have wow no yeah really (laughs) it's like are you kidding me are you telling me that those three officers didn't have a different experience leading up to that i think we froze there for a minute yeah yep I, i hear you now
0: i hear you now okay
1: so what i was saying is that. That what they're saying is that if three people were there, if two of them were not impacted by that call, the third one shouldn't have been. So the logic behind this is that all three of those people at every single moment have the same mental capacity, psychological capacity, spiritual capacity and physical capacity to process that particular situation from all three different angles that they're looking at it. Oh, and by the way, don't think of anything else that you had suffered, dealt with process or brought to that call as your personal experience and uh that is just crazy but that was in wisconsin so we actually testified in front of senate a number of times and we changed it and we actually got uh post-traumatic stress is a potential workman's comp situation um if they were diagnosed by a, a medical doctor to being uh suffering from that um but like you said we are in a new world because as we're starting those discussions I actually had somebody ask me or say, Well, aren't we just gonna open up Pandora's box when we start looking at this? And right. I'm like, I'm like, you know what? If the box needs to be open and we look at it, we need to look in it. Because guess what? We're not dealing with what's in the box. Because our people are struggling and suffering and are human beings. <laughs> and and I tell people, you know what, I hired a lot of police officers in my career. A thousand and let's say that none of those police officers were not hired from the human race <laughs> so guess what <laughs> they all suffered from being a human and if humans are not designed to experience and deal with the significant numbers of traumatic experiences that they see and deal with and you know when we talk about trauma trauma is trauma and some therapists are what well you know, it's not any different than any other person on the street, the, the trauma that they're seeing. And I'm like, you are correct. Trauma is trauma. However, it's the frequency of exposure. It's the frequency of traumatic situations that we are requiring our first responders to deal with. And for, And, and I want to just emphasize the word requiring because our police officers, our dispatchers, all of the different firefighters, they don't get a choice. <laughs> they don't get a choice to say, you know what? That call sounds really bad. I'm not going. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So what do they do? Um, what they do is they go into operations mode. Like what we talked about and what that is? Let's put some let's put some stuff controls in. What can I control? I can control the call. I can control this. And I get busy. And if you get busy then you don't necessarily have to think about your feelings, right? Or how it's going to impact you after the call because you're in it. However, you're still getting the exposure. And then it's getting imprinted into your biological system, your autonomic nervous system, and it's going to be there unless you do something on purpose, the right way to get it out of your system. And I had somebody tell me the other day that, you know what, trauma for first responders and police officers, it's like, it's like we have this big bucket. It's no longer a glass. It's a big bucket. Right. And what we do is we just keep throwing our traumas in there. And then uh, when it gets too full, what we do is we just jump on top of the bucket to try to pack it down so we can fit some more shit into it. Right. Right. We don't empty it. We don't do something that's actually self care to process it and get it out of there so we can put other things in the bucket. You know, I we talk, we do resiliency training, a good friend of ours, uh, Michael Pellegrino's group. Um, I say, you know what? Let's fill up that bucket with as many blessings and gratitudes as we can so none of the bad stuff will fit in. And, and then when, when the bad stuff happens, like what you were doing, you were recognizing the fact that your system at that funeral was not okay with what was going on. So you took a time out, you stepped aside, probably did some breathing exercises, right? did some mindfulness work. Um, but a lot of our people don't recognize that they're there and they just go there and then they don't do anything about it. They just get more busy and they just put more trauma on top of it until... And we have thousands and thousands of conversations with police officers and firefighters across the country. And it's, uh, it's eerily similar is that they don't deal with it. And then how do they deal with it? With unhealthy coping mechanisms, whether it be uh, isolation, whether it be alcohol, whether it be something else that's, that's not healthy for them. Um, and then they just keep spiraling down and it gets worse.
0: I wanna talk about um, care. You know there's there's all kinds of different levels of care once once a police officer realizes that or a law enforcement officer realizes that they need care and sometimes it's it's forced upon them because of uh, an issue that came up at work i mean how many times did we have you know do we have officers who get into a situation where maybe even their very livelihood, their job is threatened because of their behaviors, and the behaviors are, are because of post-traumatic stress. So the job itself has created an environment that can literally destroy their career. And then so many times, I mean, you and I know from, you, mm-hmm. from many, many years of experience, many good officers who have lost their careers because of post-traumatic stress because they Mm -hmm. didn't get care. So Mm -hmm. tell me what your thoughts are when it comes to, listen, uh, there are law enforcement officers listening to this program right now in various stages of their careers, Mm -hmm. various stages of of their own personal traumas. Where do you start getting help and and what do those levels look like?
1: Right, well, and uh, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said that the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. And the second best time is right now. Right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, so there's all like you said, there's all different levels of care. Um, what I often hear from people is that well, um, I sure hope that our agency starts doing something because as soon as they do, then then people can get the help. It's like, if you're going to wait for someone else to do the work for you, guess what, the work isn't going to get done. So you have to take this on as an individual mission for yourself, but then it will radiate to all of the other people that you care about um and you asked about organizations and that we're in this whole new frontier talking about this stuff and uh what i refer to is we talk to a lot of organizations obviously and what i say is that if you've seen one police organization and how they deal with the mental health situation of their police officers you've seen one police organization because there are so many different ways of looking at this and I've heard people too that have said, wow, we got a great program. We got this in place. We got policies. We have all of these different things. We have a really good, good group of people that are leading our peer support team, our administrations behind it, our chiefs behind it. And then my follow up question is, how did you treat the last person? <laughs> because if you treated the last person horribly, it doesn't matter what your policy is, it doesn't matter who's on your team. The, everybody's going to be talking about how horribly it was treated before.
0: And how many many horror stories have you heard about how officers are treated once they go and seek help? Today or this last week or since (laughs) I've been doing this? (laughs) So it's,
1: it is, yeah, so, uh, so I, but I'm going to preface that is that there are people that don't trust their organizations and won't go to the organization to ask for help for valid reasons. But like we talked about before, is that police officers are very, um, they are hired to solve problems. If they don't think they can solve their problems, then they don't want to tell anybody about that, right? So we don't want to be perceived as not being who we want to be perceived as. So asking for help within your organization, you may believe that you're letting them down. So you don't want to do that so people don't ask for help so there are different reasons that that doesn't doesn't work now as far as levels of care you know i actually have a slide that i use for this and and i think that the entry point for the first level would probably be peers a family you know those are the people that are seeing you every single day and what does that look like um, it could be just holding space or talking to somebody or just being there you know you don't have to have all the, the correct answers when you recognize that somebody's struggling you just have to be present for them and when when i hear people say hey uh you know reach out to me if you need any help it's like mm. now how about if you reach to them because reaching out for help is a lot more difficult than reaching out and providing help in a leaning or a shoulder or whatever it is um, peer support teams Um, You know, there's a couple of studies out there, too, from the University of Phoenix and the the Fraternal Order of Police did a a study that peer support is probably the most significant way that organizations can help their people and their mental health and their psychological health. Um, And what are peer support? Those are trained people on your organization that know what their role is, know what the resources that are available and how to contact them and how to get them resources. It's not just simply talking to Somebody on on the team that doesn't know where where to turn to, chaplains are another great way. But now moving into like the medical field well, and the before, medical before world. We
0: get oh, in yeah. the, yep. Before we get in the next level, I'm going to do a shameless plug for the Wounded Blue because hey, absolutely, th- that is the absolute reason why the this organization was founded, and it is mm-hmm. it is a confidential peer support program. Right. For um with with trained officers and everybody has has faced either either devastating physical injuries disabling injuries or psychological injuries and come out on the other side of the abyss and that is the sole reason why the wounded blue exists and so if you are and and, and there's there's you also mentioned something that that for that officers are, are uh, hesitant to reach out to their own organizations for uh, for a legitimate reason, and sometimes it's right. the way that those leaders uh, react to uh, a, a plea for help. So, right, uh, continue, please.
1: No, absolutely, and we've worked with your your team. Obviously, you know that. That's why we're here. and uh, And your lead peer, Brad uh, Wadby, is this amazing guy. We talk to him on a weekly basis, helping people all across the country. And you guys are doing fantastic work on that on that level. Um, yeah, but getting back to leadership, it's everyone. You know, is Everybody has their own personal biases, personal judgments about substance abuse, about mental health. And if you're gonna be in the space of providing help, you've gotta set that stuff aside. And uh, you've gotta look yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? Um, what they're going through is what they're going through. And I cannot possibly understand because I haven't walked in their shoes. But what I can do is listen and provide them with, with quality resources. So then the next step would be um, your medical doctor, right? Because now if you go to a physical or anything, they ask you a series of questions. It's usually the, the nurse, right? And there's a series of five or six questions that's asking about your mental health. And if you ask answer them a certain way, that's going to lead you down a matrix of different things, and they're going to provide you maybe with some help. And then we're talking about therapists or counselors. Now, those are people that have a degree in, uh, in counseling, social work, uh, whatever it might be. Um, there's some different uh, certificates out there as well for different types of uh, treatment modalities. But a therapist is someone that you might see, you're gonna see them occasionally. You know, maybe on the front end, if you've gone through something, it might be on a weekly basis, it might be a monthly or a quarterly. Um, after I went to the FBI National Academy, that was in 2009, we actually hired a mental health professional and we did wellness checks for all of our team. So everybody on the team, including all the civilian staff, they got at least a 45 minute space with our mental health provider to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And it was while they were on duty. So they were scheduled to go, they could talk to them, they could, they could walk in the room and say, Hey, I'm good. We'll see you next time. Or they could talk about fishing, or they could talk about what was really going on. And the goal behind that was to destigmatize having conversations because he also rode with our officers to build relationships so that they trusted having that conversation. And then when things went bad, if we had critical incident stress debriefs, or we had things, he was there to be able to help lead that. So he was experienced with that. And he saved one of the officer's lives <laughs> and, uh, and helped talk him down and got him to the help that he needed. So So that's kind of the therapist level. And then we move into the doctor level, right? Where we have either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So a psychiatrist is the MD. That's a person can prescribe medicine, and the psychologist is a talk therapy type person. So that's kind of the, the levels for that that you might be uh, that you might go to see them. They're a, a step up from where the clinicians or the the therapists would be. And then we have a level that's called IOP, where it's intensive outpatient programming. Now that would be you would go to a clinic of some sort. You might go for three or four days a week for maybe three to four hours a day for those those days that you're there, and you'll go through different treatment modalities. You'll have individual sessions with a the therapist. Uh, you might do some EMDR, which is eye eye resolution, uh, destigmatization, and uh, reprocessing uh, to help get those thoughts and that trauma out of your system. Um, there's all kinds of different things that you might do. Um, and then the next level after iop is php which is partial hospitalization program now that would be five to six days a week maybe five to seven hours a day and you would do the same thing but you do more of it it's group therapy different things like that um but you wouldn't stay at the at the facility or the program that's doing the php you would stay off site or you'd stay at home and you'd go to the program and then the next level is what's called residential residential um, is anywhere from maybe 30 days, four weeks-ish, to 90 days, depending upon what the situation is. And that's where you would go to a facility. Now, this is not a hospital setting. You, you were at Sierra Tucson, so you saw what that, that setting looks like. It sure doesn't look like a hospital, does it? No, it sure doesn't. But what they're doing during that week, uh, during the week when you're there for the four weeks, is that you have a full schedule, right? <clears throat> Seven to nine hours every single day. You're going to be seeing your doctors three times a week. You're going to be seeing a therapist on a regular basis. You're going to do group therapy. Um, you know, in this one in particular, they have every single type of treatment modality from equine therapy to to ropes courses, to team building, to uh, all of these different yoga, uh, somatic experiencing There's all kinds of different treatment modalities that can help process that trauma out of your system. And they also deal with the addiction issues. So um, for residential level, most people are familiar with it being a substance abuse treatment program because residential programs across the country, I would say probably 95% of them, you have to have a substance abuse situation as your primary diagnosis. However, we have a handful of programs that are mental health primaries, meaning that you can go with trauma, with uh, other types of mental health or behavioral health issues, and you don't have to have a substance abuse issue tied to it. Uh, But what my partner and I, you know, we've been doing this since 2017, um, and we believe we've probably had over 6,000 referrals, um, and we've had a lot of admissions as a result of that. Um, And all of our police officers and first responders that have gone to that level of residential treatment for substance abuse issues, all of them have significant trauma that's driving the substance abuse, whether it be alcohol, whether it be porn, whether it be gambling, whether it be any other type of process addiction. Um, It's usually driven by trauma, either on the job, a lot of it, either before the job or outside of the job. And it's just that cumulative career trauma that has just built up and they didn't know how to process it out of their system. So they started doing something that's unhealthy, un- unhealthy coping mechanisms. Right.
0: Okay, we're, we're coming to the end of our of our hour together. Uh, okay. Can you please tell the audience um, how they can make contact with you and your, your uh, uh, Acadia when it comes down, if they need to reach out for help, how do they find you? Right, so as, as you're saying, I work for Acadia Healthcare now. Uh, Acadia is the
1: largest behavioral health provider in the country, and they can reach out to us um, through our website, which is helpingfirstresponders.com, and we can provide that as well. It's helping the number one, stresponders.com, and uh, they can access us there with all of our contact information. My my cell phone is 920 again, 920-9737310, and they can reach me that way. Um, And what we do is we help first responders get the level of care that they need at a culturally competent program. What's really neat about what we do is that I don't work for any program. I work for the parent company and they understand that that what we do is build relationships. So, Randy, and you know this, if if, if an officer calls me and they need help for themselves, I work for them. And our service is absolutely free. I am going to get you connected Uh, through our discussions and stuff with what I believe is the right level of care, regardless of where it is, if it's inside or outside of an Acadia system, um, I'm gonna get you what you need. And that's how we do that every single day. And why do we do that? Because I've seen some amazing outcomes when people go to the right level of care. We're not gonna put you in a system uh, uh, too high or too low. We're gonna try to hit right on target because what we've seen is a lot of officers that are struggling with things and uh, they're, they may have suicidal ideations, but they're not actively suicide and they end up in a hospital.
0: Right. And well, that's, that's we, not we, where we, they belong. We've, we've run out of our time. Um, but I wanna I personally thank you for taking the time to come on to the Wounded Blue Hour. Uh, you and I could really talk about this topic for hours and hours as we have in the past, yeah. but um, right. thank you again for taking the time and this was uh, an, an amazing, an amazing show. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate it. So um, that's the end of our program for today. Uh, Tune in next week. Remember to go to thewoundedblue.org, see who we are, see what we do, reach out for help and hit that donate button. Randy Sutton, thanks. And uh, we'll see you here again next week.